0: I'm I'm realizing that uh, not necessarily in the Christian community, and again, I don't know how your week has gone, but this is not necessarily true in the Christian community, but it is a theme that I hear often in the general community, and that is people have lost hope, and they've become discouraged and filled with despair. That shouldn't be true for us as believers. When we talk about this song, that we have a hope, we we have a God who gives us hope. It's amazing. When you think about hope, a lot of people, when they say hope, they suggest to us, well, maybe it will happen and maybe it won't. Are you going to be at the dinner? I hope so. Are people going to stay six feet away from you? I hope so. Well, we don't know that for certain. But when Jesus gives hope, it is the expectation of certainty it will happen. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. These are powerful words. Now may the God of hope, don't you love that? He's the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm speaking to someone this morning, right now, who has lost hope because you've taken your eyes off Jesus, right now, turn your eyes on Jesus. Let him fill you with hope. Let him fill you with joy. Because what we're going to find in the passage that we look at this morning, this is really what was going on with the disciples. Progressively, there was this shadow of doubt and uncertainty and confusion that was clouding their hearts and mind. And they weren't really carefully listening to Jesus, what he had to say to them. We'll see that more clearly as we look at the text. Join me in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you that we can turn to you anytime. In fact, you, you were the one that said, I, I've come to heal the broken hearted. You're the one that gave the invitation, come unto me all who are burdened and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. You're the one that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're the one through the apostle Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Oh God, thank you for being for us. And right now, many of us need to claim that in our hearts. Right now. We need to take our eyes up all the voices that are around us that are not flavored by you, uh, voices that are critical and judgmental and hopeless, and we need to listen clearly to the voice of truth. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us do that, even this morning as we look at this passage. And we pray this in our God of hope, in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we've been looking at this 13th chapter of Matthew, and we're gonna continue to look at that because Jesus is using this 13th chapter as a major transition in his ministry. We talked last week about that overview of eschatology and eschatology simply meaning the study of end times. What's the future hold for us? And we want to see that what Jesus is doing right now is directly in relationship to that which he's always planned. Now what was in the hearts of the disciples, and this is why they were a little discouraged and even confused, is that they um, they were thinking that finally, this is the time that Jesus is coming back. This is when he's gonna set up his kingdom. They didn't see, they didn't see, the prophets of old didn't see that there would be this interim time, This time of separation. Been going on now for over 2,000 years in which Jesus was going to do something new. That is new to us, always known to him, always planned by him, but it's something that is new to us and what he desires to do. We see that even uh, later on in Matthew chapter 16, that when Jesus is asking the question, dealing with this theme of the church, that is going to, this church age that we're living in, he asked the question of his disciples, Who who do you who do men say that I am? And then even became more direct and said to the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter got it right, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven has made that known to you. Peter was spot on right there. It was exactly the right answer. But then Jesus begins to talk about the centerpiece of this whole age in which we're living in. John the Baptist announced it, but I don't think he fully grasped its meaning when he said to Jesus when he was coming towards him, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This was the purpose of Jesus' coming. It was to bring glory to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the redemptive process, saving us for his glory. So after Peter had been in that 16th chapter, an instrument of, um, of really re- revelation, then Jesus said very clearly, I- I've got to go up to Jerusalem. And when I go up there, I'm going to suffer by the ch- at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. Well, when Peter heard, heard those words, They were deeply disturbing to him because Peter had in mind, having already witnessed some of the power that Jesus had, he's our champion. He's our hero. He's going to lead us to victory. We're going to go back under the glory days of King David. This is it. But then when this leader, Jesus, began to talk about his death, it was devastating to Peter. And Peter, not one to hold his tongue, spoke out and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall not happen. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever said that to God, what he's planning to do, and you say to him, no, that's not the way it's going to be, God. And so when he said that, the reason he said that is because in his mind, what Jesus was talking about did not fit within the scheme of expectation that Peter had. No, Jesus is not going to die. No, he's not going to suffer. No, he's, in fact, Jesus is going, in his mind, he's going to square those people away. He's going to get this finally leveled rightly, and he's going to rule with power and righteousness. But the Lord looks to Peter after he'd said that, and he said, get behind me, Satan. And the reason he said that is, he said, you have your interest on the things of men and not the things of God. Do you know how easy it is to get your thoughts on yourself and on your circumstances and never ask the question, God, what are you doing? Where are you in this? Well, Jesus has to deal with these people, these disciples, and he does it all the way up until his ascension, all the way up until the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 1. So he's willing to deal with them, but they had a lot to learn. I think we have things to learn as well. So what Jesus does in this 13th chapter of Matthew is he actually addresses this theme called the mystery, the mystery of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in the mystery, it is not, as we said last week, something that God didn't know about, or it's not like a whodunit where you're trying to figure out who killed whom in a mystery novel. No, a a mystery by God's definition is something that he has always known. Mankind did not know that, did not see that, but now he's making that known. Paul talks about that then Colossians chapter one, when he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The temple is now you. It's not the temple that's going to be in Jerusalem. You're that temple. In this interim time, before he comes back and sets up his earthly kingdom, before he sets, after the millennial reign, the the new heavens and the new earth, right now the point of focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has to get his disciples and not only his disciples, but us today, he has to square them away to understand, God, what is it that you're doing? Before, all the way up until even in chapter 12, and you don't remember in chapter 12, that's when they begin to say, Jesus, you do what you do by the power of Satan. And when that came about, they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, that's enough. You've rejected me. Now I'm going to show you a different thing that's going to take place And the kingdom will not take place as you anticipated for a period of time. We're still in that period of time. It will happen one of these days, but not now. So Jesus then by the use of parables, and there are eight parables that are in this 13th chapter, each one is very crucial because what he's doing in these verses, he's unfolding his new plan this is how I'm going to be operating over these next years. I don't know when he's gonna come back, but when he does come back, it will be a different style of operation. It'll be the kingdom that will be established. But right now, he's answering to the disciples, this is what I expect of you. Now, you expect this, the kingdom to come, but I'm telling you, this is what I expect of you. Do you know how gracious it is of God to tell us what he expects of us. That's so freeing. We don't have to sit there and try to figure, well, maybe I'll do this and this will please God, or perhaps I'll I'll do that. Maybe you've had a child that you've asked them to cut the lawn. And that child may sit in their room and thinking, I wonder how I could please my dad today. I wonder how I could make him happy. Cut the lawn. That's what I ask. And I say that to the Lord. Lord, how can I please you? do what I'm asking you to do, believe what I'm saying in the midst of that. It's too easy for us to do like Peter, have the things of our own mind, what we want to do and how we want to do it, and miss the very thing that God is doing. So let's review a little bit what we've already seen so far in these parables. Now remember, a parable is taking a very common, practical lesson in life or an illustration And through that common illustration, he's teaching us a spiritual truth. In this case, in the 13th chapter, he's beginning to tell his disciples and the others that are not followers, those that are rejecting him, won't understand. But his disciples, he said, I expect you to understand. I want you to know what I'm doing. So he began to use parables so that they would understand, but the unbelieving world would not. So we've looked at two of those parables already. The first parable is the sowing of the seed. And what he's telling us then as first place and most importance, spread the word. Sow the seed. You don't have to make any question about that. Every morning when you wake up, you don't have to say, I wonder what God wants me to do today. The answer is spread the word. Speak about the word. You don't have to save anybody. We know that the soil has different receptivity in that, and some will be responding and some won't. But your responsibility remains the same. And so he's telling his disciples, he's telling us today that we need to be people of the word. And in sowing that word, many will reject it but some will receive that and it will be bountiful in that fashion. That's the first thing he tells us. The second thing that he tells us is, and this was contrary to what the disciples were thinking, they're thinking, finally, the kingdom will be established. We'll be able to deal with those people who are reprobates, those people that are unjust, those people that are cruel. We're going to deal with them. We're going to get rid of them. And then Jesus says, no, that's not what's going to happen. What I'm going to be doing during this period of time is that I'm going to place you right alongside unbelievers, those that are opposite to you, those that are uh, anti, those that are against you. I actually just got a note in the mail this week. And in the note, it was from one of our folks in the church here. And they were saying, thank you, thank you. I've lost my perspective. I, I, I live amongst people that are unbelievers. And I, I'm just so fatigued by their unbelief. I'm so worn out by their spirit, their attitude, their anti-God spirit. And I just wanted to be away from that and I wanted to get out of that. And you told me through the word of God that what I really need to be is right where I'm at sowing the seed, loving those people just like Jesus did. Thank you, it said at the end, thank you for helping to adjust my focus. Love, name was signed on that. It's easy to lose our perspective. But Jesus is saying, even as as he said in John 17, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them out there. I'm doing exactly what you did. And I want you to send them out there to love the world. And I'll love the world through them. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one, he said. So these are the first two parables that we've looked at. And the nice thing about that is he interpreted both of those parables. Now he goes forth in kind of a rapid process here and gives us additional parables. Each one teaching us something about this new Age in which we're in, what we ought to be doing, what we ought to expect. Now, I love the next two. Now, I'm looking at five, so don't get discouraged like, oh my goodness, he's going to cover five parables? Yeah. I'm glad I'm in my pajamas, and I'm glad I've got a cup of coffee. Well, just bear with me. We're going to do it pretty quickly. Now, it's pretty simple. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the lemon tells us that the gospel message we have is powerful, and it's gonna do great work. And then the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl, it tells us that the kingdom is so valuable. In fact, there is nothing that compares to the value of our redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus. And then the last one is just simply this. What decision are you making? And that's the dragnet that is there. It's the gathering up of fish and all kinds of fish are there and the separation takes place. And he's going to say, some will be saved and some won't be saved. That's really the message. That's what we have here. So first of all, then we see this thought about the mustard seed. He presented in verse 31 of chapter 13 of Matthew. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now the sower I believe is God there, even as it's mentioned in the sower that is before. Now we do that on his behalf even today, but it was his field, he was sowing seed there. And this is, uh, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and rest in the branches. Now, this is not an uncommon scene. They could see a mustard seed growing, and they could see how large it gets, and it does get large. And people say, well, there's actually, this, this must prove that the Bible is not true, because there's actually seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed, and a, a, and a mustard seed doesn't grow to the height of a tree. So uh, this obviously was not true. Now, really what Jesus was saying there, as a garden seed in the land in which they lived, there was no other seed that was known to be smaller. And as to the impact, it was in relationship to other garden uh, plants that were there, it did grow as if it were a tree. And so, what is he telling us then? We understand the parable has a purpose in it. What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell the disciples, who were discouraged because he was no longer talking about the kingdom, but he was talking about, even as we saw in Matthew 16, about his death. He's trying to tell them, what we're doing right now has a very small and seemingly insignificant beginning, but when it begins to express itself it 's going to have a major impact. The idea of about a tree that is there 's talking about the influence we do have that in another interpretation of the tree that was in a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and this great tree that grew up, and Daniel was able to say, that's you. That's your nation. That's how powerful you are. You're going to be able to influence people. You're going to be able to protect people. People are going to come to you for nourishment. So he's saying this, that that the kingdom of God is going to have an impact, a very, very simple beginning, but it will grow. Now, that's not uncommon in life to see simple beginnings that are carried out to rather complex, amazing things that have worldwide impact. So I was reading, and and there's so many things we could look at. We could look at music, we could look at um, the alphabet and how that simple starts with the ABCs and the and the notes that are there, 12 notes that make up all the music. But the one I want to look at then is actually math. And and it's really interesting as I look at um, Albert Einstein. And if you wonder what I do in my semi-retirement is, is that this week I read about the theory of Einstein's theory of relativity. I'd like to tell you that I mastered that. I barely could scratch the surface of gripping that. But I was pretty impressed by it. I'm more impressed by the fact that Albert Einstein started like every other child, counting to ten. Do you remember when your child could count to ten? I'm sure. Albert Einstein's parents were the same way. He said, you know, one day he finally got it. And Maybe he even got up to 20 and he got 16 right in that. I don't know what it is about 16 when kids do it. You know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 17, 8. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But he counted to 20. One time, this master genius mind started out in the most unprofound, simple way by counting and knowing the numbers. One, two, three. But gifted, he began to expand that. And it's amazing. He actually, by the age, one summer, when he was 12 years old, he taught himself, notice he didn't have a tutor, he taught himself algebra and geometry. By the time he was 14, he had mastered calculus. I don't know if you've ever taken any, amazing math courses that are complex. I remember even, and and it also goes into science because this uh, E equals MC squared, energy equals mass and light multiplied uh, on the mass and that creates, we get nuclear fusion from that and other things. But uh, when you think about that, it's a theory That has application today. Your GPS rests upon that. Our our whole satellite system rests upon the understanding of the theory of relativity. I'm not going to go into all of that, but I found it very fascinating. It's kind of like the time when I got onto the thought about other dimensions. You know, we're kind of three dimensional, but other dimensions, and that's carried out by the theme of the string theory. Physicists think about that. And that's what Albert Einstein was. And physicists talk about there may be as many as 13 realms of existence. They, 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 they sit around like um, young teenage, giddy little teenagers, and they talk about this stuff and they say, maybe there's a dimension right here, Well, when you think about that, and I won't go any further on this, but it is pretty fascinating. When it says you have angels all around you, if the angels are around us right now, where are they? Maybe they're right here. Albert Einstein started out very simply and it became complex. And I believe that this is what Jesus is telling in a much more profound way. His birth was not very significant in terms of how he came about. Born in a manger, celebrated by a few people, an angelic host that was close by and some that came to celebrate him, but very few. Um, And it was actually contrary to what anybody else would have done in celebrating Jesus. They would have had a much grander introduction. But here he is, this obscure, virgin woman mary her husband joseph in a in a stable being born and this was the christ child this is the one who would grow to be jesus who would take away the sins of the world and then we realize that jesus is saying like a mustard seed that starts very small it will grow and it will expand. So as he began his public ministry, about three and a half years when he was uh, in his 30s, early 30s, he had 12 people that were followers of his. Even at the time of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon the 120. So So here we have 12 to 120, 120 people. Do you know how many Christians now, by name, whether they are authentically the children of God, do you know how many Christians there are in the world as of 2019? It's the world's largest religion. Three billion. Three billion. It's, no, it's, it's not three billion. It's um, 1. Point something like eight. By 2050, they say it will be three billion. You say, well, how can it grow like that? Well, it's really very simple. It's the disciples being obedient to what Jesus said, sow the seed. When you think about this, even how multiplication takes place, and Paul was trying to teach Timothy this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. He said, now listen, Paul says, the things I've taught you, you teach others so that others might teach others. It's a four-generation thing there. So Paul then says, I have influence over three people. If you were to say, I'm really going to start spreading the gospel, and you decided that you were going to lead 1,000 people to the Lord every year for the next 36 years, at the end of that time, you'd have led 36,000 people to the Lord. But if you'll follow the principle of multiplication, which what Jesus is teaching right here, and how the kingdom can expand, if you will reach three people with the gospel of Jesus Christ this year, And next year, those three people will reach three people. And the next year, and it goes on out for the next 36 years, you know how many people you reach? Over a million. Over a million. Jesus is telling his disciples, you think this is some kind of obscure, uh, backwoods type of thing that's going on? I'm telling you that what we're starting now is going to be revolutionary in nature. It's going to transform the world. Powerful. Aren't you glad that the message we have is powerful? It's true. It can change the world. That's what he says in the next illustration here. A little leaven. This is kind of interesting. If you look at verse 33, only one verse long. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Actually, you're talking about, this is a similar expression that Abraham had when they were visiting the angels there with him, and they said, let's prepare something. It's about 180 gallons of flour in our measurements. That's huge, that's huge. And now he's saying, in that huge amount of flour... I'm going to introduce something called leaven, and that leaven is going to have an impact. It's going to reach every part of that flour, and it's going to cause it to to rise up. We make bread at our house sometimes. Sometimes we make pizza dough, and sometimes we just made bread the other day. I say we, it's actually Jan and I. I'm in the kitchen acting like I'm doing something. But she thinks I'm the master of yeast, she thinks I'm the only one that can get the water at the right temperature, particularly for pizza dough. And you put that in there, I just shake that little thing in there and then it, I put it in with the flour. That yeast does its trick. It permeates every part of that. So what God is saying here to his disciples is, do you understand that what I'm introducing you to and what you're gonna be introducing to the world, it will permeate every part of their being. On the one hand, it will expand in amazing ways, but it's not just going to expand. It's going to, in that process, permeate. It's going to reach deep inside, and it's going to affect every part of their being. Do you know that's the way the gospel is? That's what the gospel does to us. It, it transforms us, our emotions. It transforms our thought processes. It transforms our whole outlook on life. It, it, it deals with our past and it transforms our past. It renews, it makes new. This is the, it just keeps permeating. And you know, that keeps going on and on and on and on. So Jesus is saying, you may be thinking about the kingdom, But what I'm talking to you about is rich. It will transform lives. You know, even when we add that little leaven to that flower that's made up there, it's not an immediate transition. It it takes a little while. And sometimes we get a little worried. Is it gonna rise up or not? Is it gonna take its effect? And we just wait and we wait. and whoa, rising up. Sometimes we'll put it next to the heat and then it goes too fast, you know. But we're watching it and it keeps changing. When I think about that, that's what God has done with my life. That's what he's done with your life. He started something in you, very small, and it is permeating every part of your being. And he said, I began a good work in you and I'll bring it to completion. He will never give up on you he will change you into his likeness. Aren't you glad? Like one man said, Lord, I know I'm not all I could be or should be, but oh God, I thank you. I'm not what I used to be. We are changing people. All right. For fear that you don't think I can get through these quickly, let's go to the third parable. Now, these next two parables that he gives to us really talks about the value. This talked, the mustard seed and the leaven talked about the impact. It is transforming in nature. It is powerful. Now he says, what people need to understand is, what I'm sharing with you is the most, it's the richest, most valuable thing in all of life. He gives two illustrations along this way. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid it again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. whatever that treasure was brought a lot of excitement to him. And so when we think of this, we're talking from Jesus' perspective, like the word that is being sown, like the power of that to transform. He's saying that when you discover this, It has value beyond everything else. It's the most valuable thing in all of life. And it brings joy and and nothing else matters. Sell everything off. This is what I want to invest in. This is where I want it to be. Now, it seems as if this man was not expecting to find the treasure. He really wasn't out searching for the treasure. He just bumps into it. Do you know that that's true for a lot of people in terms of salvation? They're not searching for it. Just bump into it. Paul, when he set out in um, Acts chapter nine, he really set out to persecute the church. He had murder in his heart. He had destruction in his heart. He was feared. And so here he's on the way to Damascus and suddenly he's struck blind by this great light and God speaks to him and he realizes that whatever is going on has more value to him than everything that he'd had before. He was willing to give up everything, even to say, as we often quote, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only thing that matters to me in life is God. He's the most precious. Or I like what he says in the book of Philippians chapter three, when he says, he talks about uh, Having no confidence in the flesh in verse 3. And then he talks about himself. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, that is in his own accomplishments, his own ability, I far more. And then he begins to give some of his credentials here circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Verse seven says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he saying here? He said, everything that I thought were great in my credentials, they have no value to me. What really has value to me is Jesus. And I think we can learn a lesson here, because I think sometimes when we initially accept Christ, we're so overwhelmed by his wonderful, magnificent, grace and mercy, but we lose sight of how precious he is, how wonderful he is. And we actually get our lives tainted. I believe that for us to really enjoy all that redemption means for us, it means 100% selling out to Jesus, following him every day. The second illustration along the value of this is given to us in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's telling us exactly the same thing. It's telling us that this man realized, and our story would have to be the redemption, salvation, planted by the word, the fruitfulness that comes out of this, that there's nothing that compares to that. It's, it's, it's like this man, unlike the first one, he accidentally came into salvation. He just bumped into it. Wasn't even looking for it. But this person is searching. My life is so empty. It has no meaning. It, it is so futile. I've got to find something better. Now, we can find that in the, in the chapter before uh, Paul's conversion in the ninth chapter of Acts. In the eighth chapter, we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was sitting there reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. What a wonderful chapter to read out of because it's talking about the, the sacrificial lamb of God, talking about Jesus Christ. Philippa goes up to him and he says, do, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand that? He said, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? So so he knew that there was something missing in his life and he was reading the right story, he just couldn't grasp it. And then somebody helped him embrace that. That was Philip. And and, and it's so much so that he talked about that baptism is a means by which you declare to the whole world that you are 100% committed to Jesus Christ and he is your hope, he's your answer. And, and I'm abandoning everything else. There is nowhere else I can find hope or joy or peace. He's the one. Because the, the, the eunuch said, as they were riding along in the chariot, he said, hey, look, water. What keeps me from being baptized? Philip, this is what I want. I want this. This is answering the very deepest cravings and, 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 and hauntings and, and longing and desires in my heart. I want this. In this case, he was searching but it does suggest, even as the first one does, that there's no greater value to this. And that leads us to our last one. But I do want to say something about these two valuable things here. There is required of us to take action. See, it is symbolized by selling, going and purchasing a field. I'm going to take action here. I'm going to act upon the beauty of this gift, or I'm going to sell everything I have, and I'm going to buy this pearl because it has value. There is a responsibility that we have in terms of our salvation, and that is to act in faith to receive the gift. I just heard this week of a person that maybe is much like I described the condition of this one who realized his life was empty and, and hopeless and filled with shame and He just had no sense of direction. But this person then found God, just this week, found God speaking to them in profound ways. And and over and over there was this revelation that I'm God and I'm your hope and I'm your peace. But it finally came came to the point where you no longer were listening about God, you were ready to engage God. And they did it. They accepted the gift. And the report that I got changed their lives. I mean, it was, again, almost giddy about it, but profound in its impact. So I was thinking about this. I said, how can I describe how wonderful that is. There is no way I can describe how beautiful it is to accept Christ, to know that all your sins have been forgiven, to know that you have the Spirit of God abiding within you, that you're filled with hope, you're filled with love, you're filled with purpose. God is for you. He will never be against you. And, and you act upon that. I remember sharing with, uh, actually, uh, Jody's father, I've shared with you before, we were over there in Montana with Doug and Jody, Jan and I were there, and, and I just shared a story about a man who accepted Christ and the beauty of that. Uh, and uh, Jody's dad asks, us, what do you do with all that sin? And I told him that this is what Jesus has done. Jesus bore your sin. He's the valuable one. He's the one, even as Jesus was talking to the Father in John 17, Father, I have glorified you while I was here. Now it's time for you to glorify me. Show forth how great I am. And there is no place where the attributes of God, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, no other place in which we find the greatest expression except in the redemption of mankind. So what Jesus was doing on the cross was providing for us this salvation. And and I shared that with Jody's dad. And then I said, and all you have to do is receive that. And his words were something along this line. A man would have to be a fool not to accept a gift like that. I said, I think so. He said, I want that, and he prayed. Have you ever desired something so much, you hungered for it? I was thinking about that this week, and it's a very crude illustration, and I wish I could have thought a better one, but it's the best I can do. On special holidays and times in our lives, Jan makes something called monkey bread, Basically, monkey bread is decadent. And you don't ask God to bless what you're eating and give thanks for it. You actually go straight to confession. Father, forgive me for what I'm about to do. Monkey bread is made, it's not a complex recipe. It's just made out of uh, Rhodes Rolls, put into a bunt pan. And what I love about Jan's is she doubles the goop recipe. And what that is, is butter, Vanilla pudding and brown sugar. You put that in there. And I'm going to tell you something. When you bite into that and you get a goop pocket and you're in heaven. I mean, you're just there. Now, here's the thing about this. Now, forgive me for the crudeness of this illustration. I could look at that. I could smell it. I could thank her for baking it. I could tell her it looks delicious it must be wonderful. But there's got to be some point, if I think it's that great, I've got to feast on that. I've got to cut off a piece and start eating it. I've got to ingest it into my being. And when I do that, and the best way to do that is don't eat anything for about eight, nine, 12 hours, and let that be the first thing you eat. Now, I know that some of you are out there thinking that much brown sugar, that much sweet. Yeah, that's right. And I love it. But when I, when I, when I bite into that, it's like, hmm. Now, as crudely as that illustration is, may I say to you that many years ago, when I bit into the beauty of Jesus and I ingested him into my being, And I received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I knew that every awful thing that I'd ever done, every ungodly thing that I'd ever done, he dealt with. And he told me, whispered the sweetness of his love to me. And he said, Mike, I love you. And we're on this journey together now and I'll stay with you. And I said, oh, and may I say to you that that sweetness of Jesus that I tasted on that day is still as sweet as it ever was. In fact, there's an old gospel song that says it gets sweeter as the days go by. It gets sweeter as the moments fly. His love is richer. His grace is deeper. And I more appreciate the gift that he gave to me at that time than I ever have in my life. Which brings us to our last and final parable here in this 13th chapter. Don't lose sight of what we've looked at. Sow the seed, he said. Do it in the midst of the world where there's hostility. Understand that when you do that, it has power. And when you do that, make sure you give the invitation for people to receive that. Because when they receive that, they will understand that nothing compares to the beauty of Jesus. Nothing is more valuable than Jesus. And they will abandon everything that they have considered a value in order to embrace Jesus. There is nothing more joyous in all of life than watching people do that. That which you yourself have done. He tells us in this last parable here of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 47, is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Now here he gives us the interpretation of this. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Your good works, your education, your benevolence won't get you there. It's accepting the gift of Christ that gets you there. And until you've done that, then you're in danger of the judgment of God. That's what he tells us. That's what Jesus is telling us here. We should have a sense, not that we have to save anyone, we should have a sense of urgency about our lives. That desires, that loves, even as Jesus loved, that said, you know, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to move away from you, but I'm going to keep sharing the love of Christ with you until that day that you understand the one I love, you can love as well, and you can receive. And you know, you, you, you beg them in the name of Jesus, repent, turn from your wicked ways, receive the gift that God has given. I say that to you this morning. Maybe you've never done that. Or maybe you think you've done it, but you really didn't find it that enjoyable. Maybe you had your own brand of what you thought it was. I'm talking about that which Jesus offers. I'm talking about the fullness of his presence. I'm talking about his love, his acceptance. I'm talking about his companionship. I'm talking about the completion of the inner part of your very being, the very purpose for which you were created, fulfilled and full and overflowing. Out of you shall flow rivers of living water. This one. And if you don't have that in your life, then you're not saved, my friend. Because that's the fruit of that acceptance. You went through some religious exercise, but you didn't receive that. And that's why he says, Jesus teaches us in the seventh chapter of Matthew, that I will say to some on that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You never really embraced me. You never had a life-changing experience. You never knew the fullness of that joy, that peace. You never had me. But you know something? The net has not been thrown out yet. The fish are not being gathered. You still, this very moment, have the opportunity to say, Lord, I see Jesus now, and I want him. Father God, we thank you that you've taught us so clearly in this passage. It's so simple and yet profound. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the one that said, come and I'll give you rest. Jesus is the one who came and dwelt among us and we beheld him full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who said, as many as received him, him to them, he gives the right to become the children of God. This is the day of harvest. This is the day of redemption. And we who know you, let us celebrate the fullness of that, even afresh and anew. And those that don't, may this be the day in which they begin the journey. Amen. We go to communion now. And the communion really is a celebration of what I've just been talking about. Jesus said that what I'm doing for you is so valuable and so beautiful and so fulfilling, I just never, ever want you to forget. Never forget. He had to tell the church of Ephesus, you know, I'm I'm a little against you. You've forgotten your first love. Jesus wants us to come back and hear it over and over again. He wants to say to us right now, I love you. But he wants to hear from us that we love him. We remember him. We love what he's done for us the bread representing his body in which he took the sin of the world, the cup representing his shed blood that covers our sins. These are the tools, these are the means by which the elements that we honor God in what we have in salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you told us never to forget. And we remember right now Lord, we need to come back to that day when we first embraced you. We, we need to recall the, 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 the utter thrill and joy, the commitment that we made with our lips and our lives that we said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. You're my hope and my peace. And Lord, I've been following you for a lot of years. You've never failed me. You've never rejected me. You've had to rebuke me. You've had to correct me. But you've never denied me. Even in my times of struggle, I think of what the songwriter said, oh Lord, how can I say thanks for all the things you've done for me, things so undeserved, yet you give to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels cannot express my gratitude. All that I am, all that I hope to be, I owe it all to you. Lord, thank you. We remember and we give thanks. As you've taken your bread and you're prepared there, take this. Remembrance of the Lord. Eat. And in the same way, the precious blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, Lord, we remember. And we give thanks. Take, drink.